Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Barkoff, a former Navy SEAL and the president of Veterans for Responsible Leadership. Dan is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and Harvard Medical School. He's now an associate professor and emergency medical doctor at the University of Vermont. Dan, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here, Reed. So there's a couple things I want to go through. Obviously, you have a unique and varied history and professional experience. I want to get to testimony from the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard that he gave this week, and I want to talk a little bit more about the military and its culture more broadly. But before we get to those, I want to talk about where we stand as a nation with COVID-19. Obviously, it was about this time last year that everything started shutting down. You know, everybody suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this could be a real thing. Maybe it was a week from today. So far, we've had almost 29 million COVID cases, 520,000 deaths. I think President Biden noted that we've now surpassed every combat death of every war the United States has ever fought, declared or undeclared, which is a staggering number. You know, we're getting into the place where we're in the statistic range now, right? It's somehow hard for the human brain to encapsulate how many people that is. And, you know, we've seen that, uh, you know, whether or not it's Dr. Fauci or folks on the front lines like yourself, that, you know, we're making progress, but the fight is far from over. And so I just want to get a sense of, one, where you think we are today in this fight. Give me the medical perspective. Give me the vaccination perspective. And then where do we go from here? COVID is tentatively going well at this point. If you consider, you know, I'm kind of a history buff. I'm a a big reader of things about World War II. And I think we're through the Battle of the Bulge, but we've not quite made it all the way to Berlin. So what I mean by that is COVID is still killing people. It's still killing thousands of people a day. You know, we finally dipped below in the last week or two into the, you know, under 2000 range. So we're finally back down to, you know, a level where we're losing less than a 9-11 a day kind of thing. I mean, you know, at the peak in mid-February, there were a couple of days where we were up over 4,000 deaths a day, and we've come down about 50% from that. Now, there's a couple factors there. You know, people did get together for the holidays. People did travel. That certainly bumped the numbers up. People in the wintertime, you know, just tend to be indoors more often. So these were to be expected spikes given the choices that people were making. and. Now we're starting to see the effects of the vaccine. You know, it's now been kind of out being given to first responders, medical people starting in December. You know, I got my first shot, I think it was December 19th or something like that. And, you know, now we're doing, we're up to 2 million a day. And that's going to take some time to sort of kick in, but it will kick in. Whether or not we reach a true herd immunity, if you get the vaccine, you're protected from this virus. And that's very good news. You know, two million a day, we could be up to, you know, 300 million in five months. So 
you know, by the end of the summer, we could reach that herd immunity threshold. And what happens next year, next fall, next winter is going to look very different than this one. So a couple of questions I have for you. Obviously, we've seen what happened this week with Governor Abbott in Texas and Governor Reeves in Mississippi, which is sort of playing roulette with their citizens' health and lives. The one thing that I'm interested in is that this is a really weird bug. And I know that you're not an epidemiologist, but we have some friends who had moved away from where we lived, had basically contained themselves in a home. You know, there's three of them. They have a child. The child got COVID. Neither one of them did. They have no understanding of how it could possibly have happened. And so you multiply that by the 20 some million people that live in Texas that are moving across the borders into New Mexico, Oklahoma or Arkansas or Louisiana. So we shouldn't think of this as just like, well, you know, we're getting vaccinated, so everything's going to be fine. When we have these kinds of ideas where, okay, we can just be open 100 percent and get rid of mask mandates. I mean, we even saw with the British, quote unquote, variant, this thing moves quickly. So what's the short and long term effect of those sorts of policy decisions? Because that's what it is on public health. So the mask mandate, you know, in public spaces, that one just baffles me. Like just wear a flipping mask. I mean, it is such an easy thing to do. It costs you a dollar to get one. You know, it's ridiculous that people are not willing to wear a simple mask to keep their fellow citizens safe. People in Texas, for example, most people are going to continue to wear masks regardless. But, you know, there's going to be enough knuckleheads that decide that, you know, hey, the governor said it was fine and I don't like wearing it and I'm done. And that is going to, you know, bump the numbers. I mean, that's inarguable. It's just basic math. And that's, you know, unfortunate. As far as opening businesses, you know, businesses where people gather indoors, specifically bars, still seem like a really bad idea. You know, eating in a packed restaurant that's still indoors in an enclosed space still seems like a pretty bad idea. But, you know, most businesses at this point can find a way to remain open, you know, whether it's through contact tracing and mask wearing and physical separation, you know, outdoor sporting events in the summertime. You know, they might, you know, have to limit capacity somewhat, but, you know, people are going to start going to baseball games again. And, and that stuff can be done safely, especially as, as people get vaccinated. You know, you mentioned the new variants where they seem to be more contagious. And the best way to beat those new variants is for everybody to get vaccinated as fast as possible before these new variants start ripping through the population. And President Biden has said that he believes that there will be enough doses of the vaccine, whichever of the three. Now, I guess Johnson and Johnson is now coming online as well to have every adult in the country vaccinated by May. One thing I know, not not where I live, but in a lot of places where my friends live, is that schools are still shut down. And as I know, well, I should speak on behalf of my long suffering wife that she had to do the you know homeschooling thing for three or four months. And it was very difficult. You know, that was a year ago. It was everybody was under a lot of stress. Nobody really knew what was going on. But if teachers can get vaccinated, if the staff can get vaccinated, is there a medical reason? Is there a public health reason why kids can't get back to school? I don't think so. You know, none of us were fans of the prior administration, but they were correct in that the science does tend to support kids going back to school. Now, that's based on pediatric studies, and that's from, you know, the pediatricians are saying that. That's a different thing than is it safe for the teachers who teach school. So that's kind of the issue we're having. And, you know, the different 
parties have kind of come down on different sides of that issue. But is it safe for a 58-year-old kindergarten teacher to be in a classroom where someone has COVID? And so that's the hesitance. And I, I can see both sides of it. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with their position, which was that the harm of not having kids in school is greater than, you know, the risk of COVID transmission. I mean, this is an anecdotal statement, but, you know, so I've got a third grade daughter and two kids in her class got COVID. They had to shut down her classroom. They didn't shut down the whole school, but they shut down her classroom and, you know, she had to wait for a week and then get a COVID test and she was negative. And, you know, the desks are six feet apart and they wear masks in the class. And, you know, so it's doable. It's doable, but you have to like, think about it. It's a process. It's not something that you can just put it on autopilot. It's like, you know, you have to do the contact tracing. You have to take it seriously. And all that being said, the common sense stuff that the CDC has been saying from day one, the masks, the physical distance, that stuff works. I think your point is a good one. I think that wants me to get to where we go from here because my kids have been in school the vast majority of the time. You're right. They have worn masks. The classes are to the extent they can be smaller. They eat lunch in their rooms. They only hang out with each other. There has been a, relatively speaking, very low incidence of infection, both among teachers and students, even before the vaccine was available, which is all obviously excellent news. But you made a point like you have to think about these things, right? You go to the grocery store now. Do I have my mask? We're all having to relearn how to live. And so where does that go from here now? So let's say it's June 1st. Let's say that the vast majority of Americans have been vaccinated. Kids are now, you know, I don't know the medicine or the science behind where they feel like kids under 16 are now safe to get it. And, you know, we get through the summer. People are going to go back to the lake. People are going to go back to summer camp. Now it's Labor Day. Are people going to football games? Are people going back to school? Like, what does life look like post-vaccination, I guess? The short answer is we don't know, right? I mean, we know that these vaccines confer, if not immunity, at least protection. The amazing thing about the Johnson & Johnson, the Pfizer, and the Moderna vaccine is nobody in those trials died. Once they got the vaccine, there were zero deaths out of, you know, thousands and thousands of people. There were I believe, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were zero hospitalizations of anyone who got the COVID vaccine. That really changes things. It's possible that COVID becomes, if we have a healthy vaccinated population, it's possible that COVID becomes a nuisance. It's a coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus historically has kind of been, it was taught to me in medical school as a virus that, hey, you don't need to pay too much attention to because you know, it's most commonly associated with the common cold. You know, do we get back to a point where this virus that happened to be much more virulent than most other coronaviruses is now kind of no big deal? And I think that's possible. You know, I, I do think it'll change people's behavior, perhaps permanently. I'd expect people to, long after it becomes no longer mandatory, some people are going to wear masks on airplanes. Some people are going to wear masks on the subway. Um, an interesting thing, Reed, is because of all the COVID, we've seen essentially zero of the usual winter illnesses. So the flu is non-existent this year because we're doing all this stuff for COVID and it's also protecting it against a flu outbreak. So is that one of those things where, you know, now every October, potentially I'll get my flu shot and my COVID shot? Very potentially. We just don't know. We just don't know how long this first shot is going to last. Let me transition a little bit to your military experience when, you know, we as the vast majority of us, I think 99 percent of Americans now are civilians. We always say that our fighting men and women are over there protecting our freedom. And I believe that. 
But the definition of freedom, I think, has morphed into something weird. If I say, please wear a mask so you don't kill my sick father, that's not impinging on your freedom. That's just asking you to be like a normal member of society. And I think that's one thing that I, I've been thinking about really over the course of the week is that this stuff has not only public health issues, and there's some political motivation there too, but it has sort of broader societal issues. Again, for the civilian, we always think of you all, again, all the men and women who've done this, as fighting for our freedom. Unfortunately, we don't even know what that means to ourselves. You know, it gets right at the issue of like, what is a civic duty? Even short of the military experience, you know, as a citizen of a society, what is your duty to that society? Do you have any public health duty? I mean, I certainly think you do. Does that public health duty include wearing a mask? I certainly think you do. Does it go so far as to you ought to get a vaccine because then you will be providing herd immunity to people who are at risk? You know, that's kind of more of a great, you know, I can see the other side of that. I mean, I think one has a civic duty to get a vaccine, but I can see how other people might take the other side of that. Something as simple as wearing a mask when you go to the gas station. That's not freedom. When we talk about freedom in the United States of America, we're talking about political freedom. We're talking about freedom to organize politically. We're talking about freedom of speech. We're talking about freedom of religion. Well, but a lot of people are taking that as freedom to be an asshole anywhere, everywhere (laughs) you want to be anytime. The flip side of democracy is self-governance, but that also means self-responsibility. It doesn't mean you get to be yacked however you want, whenever you want to. It means that you know well enough or you're mature enough as not only an individual or a group of people and and ultimately as a society and as a nation to say, we have these responsibilities to each other. Yep, absolutely. Well, speaking of responsibilities to one another, I want to switch to our next topic. On Wednesday, Major General William J. Walker, who is the head of the D.C. National Guard, testified before Congress saying that he had gotten a panicked call from the then head of the Capitol Police that the building was being overrun and that they needed immediate assistance. It took over three hours from the time that the general made the request to the Pentagon until he was allowed to deploy troops. And so, Rob, can we play the first clip from General Walker? Chief Sun, his voice cracking with emotion, indicated that there was a dire emergency at the Capitol, and he requested the immediate assistance of as many available National Guardsmen that I could muster. Immediately after that 149 call, I alerted the U.S. Army senior leadership of the request. The approval for Chief Sun's request would eventually come from the acting Secretary of Defense and be relayed to me by Army senior leaders at 5.08 p.m., about three hours and 19 minutes later. So, Dan, I don't know enough about the military. You know, I mean, I understand the federal response of things, right? The executive controls these things. Obviously, the president starts as commander in chief and those responsibilities flow downward. But what would have been the reason why there wasn't an immediate, you know, put those guys and gals in trucks and get them down to the Capitol? The first thing I would say is that it's very difficult for a large bureaucracy to react to a crisis that they're not anticipating. For me, this is an error of omission, not commission. So three hours to get something turned around, you know, Reed, think about this, like, you know, Benghazi, right? So you have an embassy that's being overrun. You have troops in contact. You have Americans getting killed. And some CIA guy on the ground makes a phone call. You know, when he picks up the phone, it's not going directly to 
the secretary of state or the president, you know, it's going to his supervisor who then calls his supervisor, who then calls his supervisor. And unfortunately, there are layers in these federal bureaucracies. No more so than probably Department of Defense, I guess. Exactly. And so what I was going to say is, you know, there's a saying in the military, you can delegate authority, you can't delegate responsibility, right? So the authority to release those troops should have been delegated long before people were storming the Capitol. And I believe there was a memo that went out that, you know, was leaked from the acting SecDef that basically said, any decision about a QRF has to be run through me. QRF meaning a quick reaction force. So any military operation is going to have a plan for if things go sideways, who's going to come and help. So they deliberately made it more onerous and more difficult to have these troops participating in crowd control. So as someone who's been a part of the military, the only way you get something done fast is if you have really like decentralized command and you have people who have the authority to act independently. And that wasn't the case here. You know, I'm sure that at 1.30, when the chief of the D.C. National Guard called for help, I'm sure no one took a coffee break in there. It should have never taken three hours. The fact that it took three hours is not surprising to me, but it should have never taken that. But, you know, I want to come back to something. You said large bureaucracies have a tough time responding to emergencies they're not anticipating. But if you go back to Trump's statements going back into mid-December, he was saying, we'll see you all on January 6th. There has now been information relayed that whether or not it was the D.C. cops, whether or not it was the Capitol Police, the FBI, the military, there was no secret that something could happen. You know, we have a bureaucracy that is so big, so spread out, so disconnected, if not decentralized. You know, I think it was one guy's like, oh, yeah, the FBI sent me an email. What? They sent you an email about a potential like riot at the Capitol? Can somebody pick up the phone and say, hey, chief so-and-so, can you make sure that, you know, you got extra people on the ground because this is likely to happen? At what point does like the bureaucracy become so bloated that it's not going to get done? So I actually pulled up the memo. So Chris Miller, acting SecDef, right? So January 4th, he sends a memo out. He says this memo responds directly to January 4th regarding DC's request for National Guard support for this planned demonstration. All right. So he says, without my subsequent personal authorization, the DC National Guard is not authorized the following. Can't have weapons. To interact physically with protesters except when necessary in self-defense. Prohibited from sharing equipment with law enforcement agencies or seeking support from any non-DC. So Virginia and Maryland can't play. Forbidden from conducting searches, seizures, arrests, or other similar direct law enforcement activity. Forbidden from using ISR assets or to conduct incident awareness and assessment activities and no helicopters, no air assets. So the acting SecDef ahead of that protest said, you guys cannot do anything unless I give you my approval. There's your three hours right there, right? Like, so this guy, a Trump appointee, you know, if you want to get all conspiracy theory about it, you can say he was deliberately put there in order to have a slow response. Whether that's true or not, what is true is that he, he issued this memo and he had to give personal approval for anything. So right there is why it took so long. Okay. So, you know, you can delegate, would you say, authority, but not responsibility. He chose to do neither. He was basically tying the guard's hands. He was. And he effectively did. He tied the guard's hands and the guard couldn't react quickly. He forbade them from acting quickly. Well, Dan, I think that leads to the third topic we're going to discuss today, which is something that you are at uh, Veterans for Responsible Leadership really taking a close look at, which is 
In the wake of the January 6th sacking of U.S. Capitol, we've seen that there were many current and former law enforcement. I don't know about any current military personnel, but several retired military personnel who were involved. And General Milley has expressed as recently as this week a real concern that there is a strain of nationalism running through the ranks. But what does that mean? I mean, we're now an all-volunteer army. We ask specific things of specific people. They tend to, with the exception of folks, I assume, who go to service academies, they probably far more either rural or inner city kids. Maybe you're trying to get your GI Bill. Maybe you're trying to use it to learn how to fix helicopters or some trade that you can ultimately take with you. But what we've known in the last 20 years is that if you join the military, especially in a branch such as the Army or the Marine Corps, you're probably going to get deployed even in the other two branches, the other three branches, I guess. Um, I don't know that the Space Force has been deployed, but I'll leave that for another episode. So what's your sense of it? I mean, obviously you served. Is this A, an issue? And B, if so, how long has it been percolating? And C, what do we do about it in a situation where we have folks who very well might believe one thing over another politically, and it could have real impact on the military? Is it an issue? Yes, it's an issue. And it has been for quite a while. You know, there's a lot of factors that kind of go into that. The issue of, is it a problem in the military? I didn't see it hardly at all in the military. And what I mean by that is I had some guys in my platoon who were, you know, racist, for lack of a better term. And they kept their views to themselves. And when I had uh, in one of the platoons I was in, we had some African-American guys and, and they got along and they kept it under wraps. And, you know, the platoon did what the platoon was supposed to do. But those people then get out of the military. And so you are really on to something when you say we incentivize military service with kind of financial incentives, right? So 1973, Vietnam is winding down. People want to get rid of the draft. You know, the draft is wildly unpopular. It's an unpopular war. Conscription goes away and we switch to an all-volunteer military. So when you have an all-volunteer force, there are some obvious benefits to that. The people in the military want to be there. It's easier to inculcate like a culture of professionalism. You have more people who tend to stick around longer. So maybe they, instead of just doing their one drafty enlistment and getting out, they you know, make a career of it. These are all good things. There are also problems with that. What you do is you introduce a pretty dramatic selection bias. So you know the folks who join the military are different than if you were just to draft people. When you have people who volunteer to join, you know, you've got some who are there, like you said, who are there for, you know, I want to use the GI Bill. I want to pay to college. This is a way to do it. You've got some who join, hey, I'm from East Nowhere, Missouri, and I want to see the world. And if I join the Navy, I get to go to Japan. Then you get a slice of people who join because they're attracted, you know, and I'd include myself in this. They want the adventure, right? They want to go out and defend American interests and they want to, uh, you know, shoot guns and blow things up. And if those are kind of your core groups of people who are joining, a lot of those people joining are going to kind of look alike on paper. You know, you're going to get people from rural towns. You're going to get people from poor towns. You're going to get people who are bent on martial activity, for lack of a better term. So there's a strong selection bias. And the question now we're wrestling with at VFRL is the first thing we need to know to combat 
radicalism and veterans who are doing things like storming the Capitol is figure out how they're getting radicalized. And there's three possibilities. They're radical and then they join the military. They get radicalized while they're in the military or they get radicalized after they leave the military. Some people we know are members of the Aryan nations to use a 1990s group. And they specifically are joining the Marine Corps so they can learn how to shoot guns and patrol and immediate action drills and all that kind of stuff. And then they're going to go back and they're going to teach these other guys in the Aryan nations how to do it. And that's a real thing that happens. My suspicion is that's not most of what we're seeing. My, my suspicion is probably that people are getting radicalized while they're in the military and then when they leave the military and they go home. The people in the military who are getting radicalized in the military, that's kind of the military's problem. Those people are subject to the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And as soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines are members of these outside groups, they have to, you know, kind of come down firmly on that stuff. Let me use my only basically Hollywood-based vision of what it's like to be day in and day out in the military. There's a barracks, but there would not seem to be a lot of ability to sort of hide in a room and say, we're all going to, you know, light the torches and burn these cards and say, you know, we ascribe to this, this ideology without somebody having an awareness that it's going on. Yeah. And I think it's tough to explain. Let's say I'm an African-American kid and I'm in Afghanistan and I'm in a ground line infantry company and we're doing foot patrols. And there's a guy in my platoon who I know for a fact, his uncle's in the clan. He talks about it and, you know, all this kind of stuff that would make anyone under any circumstance terribly uncomfortable. But you're in the same platoon and you're doing the same foot patrols and the real enemy is the Taliban. So that stuff tends to get kind of overlooked. Now, you're right when you're back in like a barracks and, you know, that kind of environment, it's perhaps a little tougher to hide. But again, I had guys in my platoon who I knew were racist and I don't think they were part of any organizations or anything, but they kept it together while they were at work and they did their job. And the, the black guys in my platoon didn't have a problem with that. So a lot of stuff gets kind of swept under the rug the closer you are to the war. Right. You know, and and I, I understand how that happens. I'm not justifying. I'm not saying it's right, but I understand why that happens. Well, and I mean, to your point, and this is why I asked the question. Yeah. If you are doing patrols most of the time in Afghanistan or Iraq or someplace else. Yeah. You're worried about, you know, some bad guy from the hills shooting at you. I get that. But if you are on a ship, you know, a relatively small confined space like an aircraft carrier, it just seems to me that you know, the ability to meet and sort of spread these views would appear to be more difficult. And so I guess my question would be, you think some of it may start there, right? Maybe some of these things are fostered, but there's probably more freedom and more privacy once you get out, right? And then when men and women are getting out of the military, especially if they've been multiple deployment, they're sort of left on their own. And so does that detachment literally and figuratively lead them to some place where they can find folks who have been through what they're through, gone through and believe what they believe and they can almost find a home. Exactly. Some people are radical. They join the military. Some people get radicalized in the military. But I think the real problem in at VFRL, we think the real problem is people getting out and kind of just going off and doing their thing. You know, military service, there's a reason people enlist over and over. There's a reason people stay in beyond their commitment. There's a reason people describe it as, you know, the most powerful kind of affirming experience in their life. 
And that's the camaraderie. There's very few other kind of venues in life where you're with a group of people and you are sworn to complete a dangerous task together and you've trained together and you've worked side by side and lived together closely. And, you know, you literally would die for these people and they would die for you. And then you just, you know, one day you go home, you take off the uniform, the military sends you to TAPS, you know, which is a one week program. And then, you know, you're done and you go back and you go back to, you know, East Nowhere, Missouri. And you're like, man, I had this friend group, this peer group, and I had purpose and meaning. And now I'm kind of, you know, I'm looking for a job at the Circle K. And that's the time when your buddy from high school who, you know, was kind of a racist was like, hey, you know, me and the guys are going to go shoot some guns in the woods this weekend. You want to join? And sure. And then, you know, that's kind of fun. And then, you know, before too long, you end up with stuff like what happened in Michigan. And I think the way to counteract that is, you know, it's incumbent upon the other veterans. It's incumbent upon people like me to, you know, check in on these guys, you know, and we've got to provide these folks with some kind of alternative. And at VFRL, that's what we're talking about. It's like, how do we redefine patriotism? So it's not getting an AR-15 and shooting guns and practicing military stuff in the woods with these guys who, you know, are from my local area. I don't think that's patriotic. And most veterans, you know, the vast majority of veterans don't do that stuff. There's a movie called The Hurt Locker where Jeremy Renner plays a bomb disposal guy. And he comes home from a deployment, and I don't know if it's his wife or his girlfriend, sends him to the grocery store and to get cereal. And to me, it's the most impactful scene of the whole movie, and it's only maybe five seconds, and it takes this long shot of the cereal aisle. And there are so many choices, all the different bright colors and everything. He looks and he literally doesn't know what to do. And the next scene is him back in the suit, back in Iraq, disposing of an IED. It was a masterful piece of cinema because it just totally encapsulated how the guy was feeling in like five seconds, like you just described. So talk to me a little bit more about Veterans for Responsible Leadership. How'd you get started? How can we hear more about it? How can we get in touch? Any more information you want to share? So VFRL, we like to use the term, we are not a veterans organization. We are an organization of veterans. You know, our core values are commitment to kind of a nonviolent political process being of ongoing service to our country. And we think that our oath did not end. And politicizing military service, which happens on both sides, you know, we think is wrong. Veterans are not victims. We reject that narrative. And, you know, we want to continue to be of service to our country and to help other veterans. We promote honest and civil leadership on both sides of the aisle. And we are looking for folks you know, we've grown from a couple of dozen members when I started the group to close to 4,000 now. And, you know, if you're interested, the best way to check us out is to go to our website. It's vfrl.org. We're also on Twitter at Vets4RL. Um, and there's, there's contact information on, on both of those. But, you know, we see our role in preventing fascism from, uh, you know, taking hold in America as providing a veteran voice that is committed to honor and decency and truth. Well, certainly we could use more of that. And Dan, we certainly appreciate your partnership with the Lincoln Project over the last few months. And I think that it is, from my perspective, exactly the kind of thing we need. Where can we find you online? My uh, Twitter handle is just at dbarkoff. And 
That's the best way to find me these days. Well, doctor, thank you so much for of sharing an hour with me today. And, and I hope that you can come back and share some more of both what you're seeing on the medical front and some of the work that you're doing with veterans and on civil society. I hope we're turning the corner on both these issues. There's reason to be optimistic, but the work is not done. Well, that is for sure. And I, I really do believe optimism is the wellspring of this. I know for a fact that if I wasn't optimistic, it would be sometimes hard to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. And to everyone listening, thanks for downloading. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking, with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.